You're listening to Were You Still Talking? So, let me try this another, actually rehearse this a little bit. Today in my studio, I have Bruce Birchmore, a friend that I've known for a really long time. Uh, Bruce is a writer, producer, director, musician, Pilates instructor, uh, and he's, uh, one of the things we're going to talk about is a documentary film, or maybe several documentary films that he's working on, and uh, what it takes to do that, and those are about an instrument called the harpsichord, which I know very little about, so I'm going to learn about it along with everyone else listening. It's a pretty incredible um, instrument, history, um, all that kind of stuff. Hey Bruce, welcome to the podcast, wish you were here. Uh, Joel, good to talk to you. How are you? I'm doing well. It's really awesome to talk to you. It's just, it's, it's killer. It's one of the reasons hey, I started thanks. a podcast, so I can start talk to people I never talked to. Yeah, no, it, it's, uh, we, we don't normally uh, talk like this, so it's, it's good to kind of catch up and see, what, see what's going on, shoot the shit a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it's it's awesome, totally awesome. So you are you you were just telling me you are still doing Pilates and, and even in even in in a big way. Well, yeah, I mean, I it, it's what I've been doing for my entire professional career. Uh, God, going on twenty five years now, um, and uh, you know, it's it's gone through a, a sort of a fluctuation of of activity and and regarding sort of my interests, you know, what I, how I like to spend my time, what I, what I do with other aspects of my life. And, and I'm always tried to coordinate other interests around, you know, my, my continual need to make money. So that's, right. that's, uh, you know, it's, so I've gone through a lot of different phases, uh, with, with the Pilates business. Uh, and, you know, a lot of that just has to do with, you know, staying staying in touch with trends, uh, workout trends, physical uh, trends, as far as uh, what what's what's the big rage right now. And uh, you know, when I first started, you know, uh, yeah, many years ago, back in the '90s, you know, Pilates was this sort of up and coming thing. So I, I caught that that wave uh, right at the right time, um, and uh, allowed me to. You know, ha- have a very interesting and successful career. You know? Yeah, it's. I mean, when I started uh, taking lessons from Bruce a long time ago, and he was nice enough to to put me through uh, in, an instructorship and let me do some instructing with him. And um, when I started, I had never heard of Pilates, and suddenly, two weeks later, it's everywhere: P- Pilates and Yoga Lattes and. Uh, on and on and on. <laughs> do you um, hmm, do you ever th- get like sort of I don't know frustrated with the the watering down of of Pilates or the different uses of the word? I guess I could say. Uh, not not so much anymore. There there was a time that it really you know chapped chapped me a little bit. You know I did I I didn't see the reasoning for it. I thought that it was it was wholly unnecessary because. The, the original Pilates method, when understood well and executed well, it's one-stop shopping. I mean, you don't really need to invent anything new for it. Right. Um, and okay. so it, it always, you know, rubbed me the wrong way that it just seemed like a brazen attempts at marketing for certain individuals who wanted to 
continue you calling something Pilates, but then either putting their own name on it or hybriding, hybridizing the, the word with yoga or, yeah, yoga. Um, so, but I, 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 I've kind of softened on that opinion a little bit uh, because my, my firm belief is that even if it's a bad workout, it's still a pretty good workout because it's better than no workout. Right. Oh, well, that's true. Yeah. You know, I guess it's better than doing nothing. It's better you know, than so doing even nothing. a bad workout's a great workout, you know, and, and if even if you're even if a person just gets up and takes a walk around the block, that's that's there's something to be said for that. Um it's just that uh the true Pilates method when when done correctly and faithfully and frequently, the you you can't really get into better shape. Uh that's true. It's yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Um Yeah. Wish I could do it. Yeah, I wish you could too. I heard. I hear you. Uh, you've had a little bit of uh, some issues with your with your lower back. Is that right? Yeah, I've had some big issues with my back. Um, first, I had shoulder issues, and it it was mm-hmm. painful to do anything. And then uh, more recently, I've had back issues. It's gotten a lot better, but uh, so maybe I can start doing. Pl- I can walk around the block again, and that was difficult that's for a good. long time. So <laughs> that's helpful. Right. At least I can do something. Yeah. So this, uh, exactly. you're doing a, a documentary on Scott Ross. Um, what, yes. Like, oh, how, how did that, uh, how did that come about? First, first word, the first word you get the inspiration, and then I want to ask you about about Scott Ross himself. And oh, sure, yeah. Well, I mean, I can probably answer a, a lot of questions with my with my reasoning for why I did it in the first place, which basically was that there i guess it was in due to the the um kind of the finding myself in this this world of netflix and uh documentary filmmaking and things like that and there there seemed to be a lot of interesting content uh, about musical figures uh past and present and it just it made me think about scott ross who i'd always admired his his work um, as a music student uh, going to USC and other uh, fine institutions, um, studying the early music, as it's called, or the, the ancient music, which basically is a devoted research to music, uh, basically anything before Mozart. Mo- Mozart is considered highly modern if you compare it to everything that came before it. Okay. Uh, okay. So, and that's and that's the that's the era in which the harpsichord lives, in which it came from, uh, and uh, the instruments that I was studying, like the lute and other kind of plucked stringed instruments, uh, kind of fall within the same aesthetic of sound and uh, compositional style, seventeenth and eighteenth century uh, compositions. Um, so I, I already knew about Scott Ross quite well, uh, in addition to, you know, basically anybody who recorded for that instrument. Uh, but he, his story was, in my limited knowledge when I first dreamed up this whole thing, uh, was, was rather compelling. It sounds uh, amazing. A, a, a virtuoso as a child, teenager, mm-hmm. um, taken to France by his, uh, his mother, who uh, was 
kind of in looking herself for kind of the next thing in her life. Uh, there was the, everybody, the, their whole family seemed to be on this plateau uh, in kind of a standstill uh, due to the death of, of her husband, Scott's father. Uh, so they, they find themselves in France when he's uh, around 14, about to turn 15, and uh, just due to some happenstance, random sequence of events, uh, he ends up staying there and studying music uh, kind of at college level. And uh, quite soon after that, he he began a, a, a quite reputable career as a recording artist and a soloist and a performing harpsichordist. Um, and uh, so it's, it's, it's that, that biography, um, which is also peppered with other kinds of strange facts and um, sort of eye-opening, eye-popping kinds of facts as well, which I won't really go into now because I don't want to give it away. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, it, 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 it just kind of sucked me in and it continues to do so. We've been working on it about five years now. You've been working on it five years, and you've gone to several different places in America, and you've gone to, like, how many countries have you visited? Uh, let's see. I think we visited, uh, excluding America, because I'm already here. Uh, well, we went to Canada, we went to France, we went to Belgium, we went to Holland, and we went to Germany. So that's six. Wow. Um, and... Uh, and m- m- mostly for the Scott Ross story, uh, mm-hmm. one of the things that that occurred to me quite early on before we even left the United States the first time, our first trip was in France. We went to France for five weeks, and that was a lot of fun. It was a lot of work, uh, a lot of surprises. Um, but one of the things that I had planned on doing was, well, you know, a lot of the people that we interviewed were also reputable musicians in their own right, mm-hmm. uh, with some, some of whom had uh, reputations uh, even larger than Scott, that of Scott Ross. So I, was, I thought, well, maybe if we can have them maybe do a little performance after our interview, things like that, and, and also talk, talk about just musical uh, subjects. Uh-huh. I thought that, that. I thought then. Well, maybe. I'll, maybe at the end of the 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 production, we'll we'll have maybe uh, enough material that I can then do a separate documentary on just the the instrument, the harpsichord, and its history and its music and the the great composers that wrote for it and the great players who played it both historically and still alive today, and uh, just kind of run through that timeline. Uh, in as interesting way that you could do with such a um, unknown uh, instrument that really ne- needs a little bit of you know warming up to the public, and uh, I think there's a way to do that. Definitely, the I music, think because the, the music's amazing. So you know the the best of the music is is on par with any any great composition mm-hmm. that, that that we that we know about. And what little I've learned about the harpsichord, just from you know following along on your adventures, uh, it's it's a pretty incredible history. For instance, uh, you know most people listening probably don't know 
when, like, how old it is and that it predates the piano? When did they, when did harpsichords appear in history? Well, that's, that's, that's a, uh, a little bit fuzzy. Uh, uh-huh. There are written descriptions of, of the harpsichord uh, dating back to the 14th century. Wow. Um, no, no instruments from that period survive. And we, so we, we, you know, it's, it's a little bit, of conjecture, you know, it's up to conjecture at that point as to sort of the the range of the instrument, how big it was, what it was used for, uh, etc. Um, but what what we do know is that there is not really any surviving music for it until we get to basically the end, the very end of the 15th century, which is a, a, a also coincidentally when we first see our first surviving instrument. Um, but the, the the theory behind it goes goes back 100 years before that, and likely even before that. Um, you know, so, and, and we've heard many, many different uh, explanations on, as to the inspiration for the instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, but it obviously, it's a keyboard instrument. Keyboard instruments had been around before, uh, the harpsichord, uh, the organ, most notably, and that that's that's a, a rather old instrument. Oh, okay. Um, so the yeah. idea of producing sound by hitting keys um, was not new by the end of the 14th century when we start to hear these first descriptions of uh, the possibilities for for their construction. You know, there was even a some some interesting theoretical uh, discussion of uh, different types of uh, uh, methods or um, uh, technical considerations of how the instrument would be built and how it would um, kind of produce the sound. Um, there, there was uh, a description of using um, like a hydraulic system, using wa- literally water to power the instrument. Uh, wow! By the same right, by the same writer, we. He even came up with a theoretical instrument using different sized pigs, um, <laughs> which, 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 which I, this is true. So you'd hit the key, which was then attached to a series of levers, and at the very end of it was like a thumbtack, which would then plink the pig, and it, who would squeal, <laughs> oh, hopefully, hopefully on, hopefully on pitch. That doesn't sound um, real. So I, I find I, I found that. At the very least, uh, these these early writers uh, were had a really good sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think they did. So, so yeah, Either they we, were very we creative, or, or they thought, of, "Well, seven hundred years from now, people are going to really be cracking up at this." <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so, but but the 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 heyday of the instrument was uh, it kind of coincided with the. Um, the uh, advent of music printing. So, oh, you know, okay. we're talking, you know, the, the, the middle of the, of the 16th century and the, 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 the techniques of printing music were far, you know, uh, being improved greatly. Uh, and, uh, and then the, in- the instrument just kind of went through this uh, fascination Increasing fascination uh, over the over the end of the 16th century into the 17th century, when it finally 
um, a couple of different things happen. It, we, we finally see uh, uh, the first big center of harpsichord manufacture, even you know by hand, of course. These are all handmade instruments in workshops with dedicated uh, craftsmen who, mm-hmm. who, ev- who eventually took it to the, the highest level that we will ever see. Uh, and the, and the, the, the first big center was Antwerp in um, what is now uh, Belgium um, by a family of makers called the Rooker's family. Um, and they're, 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 and so they're, these these instruments, and this is we're, we're talking late 16th, early 17th century, and these 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 are considered the Stradivari of harpsichords. And they're still they still exist, and and there are oh, yes. still examples in them in like really good condition. Yeah. Uh, the, yes, there are some some examples which are in perfect original playable condition and there are a lot of examples at the other end of that spectrum where we just have bits and pieces you know they're worm-eaten um you know that we just have the soundboard which is you know oh, wow. falling apart it looks like if you if you sneezed on it it would just crumble mm-hmm. you know, things like that so you know the 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 care of harpsichords which is another sort of topic unto itself uh you know it it just depends on what it, what the instrument went through how it was stored, and obviously the most important thing is if it was continually played, because as a wooden musical instrument will, they kind of die if they sit there too long without being touched. Guitars, uh, violins, oh, so they ne- yeah, okay, so they yeah, they need to be played in order to survive. Yeah, it's yeah because of the the, the vibrations going through the wood, uh-huh. uh huh, and that's that's what keeps that wood alive, literally. Um, so once once it, it it's like Rip Van Winkle, you know. Once it uh-huh. once it goes to sleep for too long, it's it's kind of hard to wake it back up. Oh, interesting. Well, yeah, it just gets sad, I think, from not being played. Sure, sure. <laughs> the so what like what was the? Is there any uh, particular trip that stands out, or or um, you know? I know they all do. I, I got to tell you, Joel, they they were all. Uh, you know, it didn't matter where we went. You know, uh, the, as, you, as you mentioned, um, our mutual friend John Griffin, mm-hmm. uh, whose whose expertise has really helped make this uh, process uh, rather rather fantastic. Let, let alone just bearable. You know, to sort of be traveling for as uh, as long as we sometimes do right um he's, he's a great guy to, to be around he he never lets you down as far as like delivering the goods he, he always sets the cameras up he his filming is impeccable and it just keeps getting better uh he's his knowledge of you know audio recording and you know where to place microphones and things like that when we'd have our our um performance say Mm-hmm. Always, always, always coming, coming through with really great footage and audio recording. Um, so, so you know, it's it's always been a a, a really satisfying experience. Um, you know, the the works the workload sometimes is overwhelming. Sometimes, it, you know, where it's like kind of like when a band shows up in a town to play and then they don't have a concert for another two days or trying to find the next gig. And you just kind of, you kind of try to 
make the most of that time, whether it's just doing some sightseeing. Obviously, when you're in a place like Paris, you know, you just walk out on the sidewalk and there's a, a cafe and pretty soon, you know, you're having, you're drinking beer at, you know, one in the afternoon and it's great. Um, and the, the food and the people and, you know, the different, uh, just the, the different aspects of visiting another country. Everybody's still, it's a, just good old people. But, you know, right. it's like, right. it's like, it's like, uh, like, uh, uh, John Travolta said in Pulp Fiction, you know, it's just, it's just the little subtle differences, you know, and I didn't go to McDonald's and I didn't have a Royale. I was trying to resist that one. You didn't have a Royale. Thank God. I didn't have Royale. Yeah, there's, there's a nasty McDonald's story in my last podcast, but, uh, exactly. <laughs> So, so no you know, McDonald's. we you know we, we we went up to the Bay Area just to go to San Fran- San Francisco. There's a couple of interesting individuals up there, harpsichordists and mm-hmm. friends of Scott Ross, and there's a there's one of the the most reputable harpsichord builders in the whole world is in Berkeley. Oh wow! Um, you know, so just getting the kind of California thing, and then you know we went up to to Quebec. Uh, the province of Quebec and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, visited Montreal and Quebec city. And, you know, it's, it's like, like France with fur trapping, you know, it's, it, it was, you know, it's very kind of rustic, you know, woodsy, France with fur uh, down home, you know, not as sophisticated as France, but then everybody's speaking French. I mean, it's hard, it's hard to go around Quebec if you don't speak French. Unless you're unless you're in Montreal, mm-hmm. you know people just don't understand you, and, and you know so I've I've had to I've I've had to work on my 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 limited French. Oh, so uh, but you do speak French. You didn't have some. Oh no 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 no! no I can't. You don't. I, so, I, I I can I could I could have a reasonable conversation with a four year old. Okay, that's that's about as good as that's, my French. That's a start. Uh, other <laughs> than that, I can order things. I can. You know, ask uh-huh. for directions, but other than that, I, I get stage fright and I I I, I can't remember. Oh, that's interesting. I can't I, remember I the word that. for something. You know what I mean? Right. So I, yeah. I just I just get stuck. So and and it's interesting now. But um, when we first started going to France, you, you found that the 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 it was kind of a similar situation. Like a lot of people did not speak English. Um, what? But since we've been returning, it seems like that's starting to change, and I think it, oh, really? it really has a lot to do with the kind of the the rise in the you know the aging process of millennials who mm-hmm. are are more global. Oh, that's um, interesting. So do you? Even, so you usually have someone that does speak English um, nearby. So because I, I yes, see, exactly. Yeah. And w- one of the trips that we that we uh, took. To Europe, and it was back in 2016. We actually there was three of us. It was me and John, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, our, another ex, uh, associate producer who we met actually in Quebec City, um, who's a harpsichord player, an organist, um, a scholar, and obviously speaks French. So it was very handy to have her along. Her name's Lizzie Ambulva, and we've been very very fortunate to have her. Um, associated with this project because uh, she she's done quite a lot of of uh, sort of intense work for us that that no one else wants to do um, dealing with the footage and uh, cataloging it and in 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 most cases uh, transcribing the interviews so we have a, we have most of the interviews written out on paper 
Oh, okay. Um, yeah, that's 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 a task. Have, Even a, if it's English transcribing, you know, an interview yes, is yes. is a lot of work. But then to yeah to change the language or go through different languages. This is, I mean, for three people. I at one time there was a fourth person involved. Right? There was another. Um, yeah, the first trip we went on, there we, we had we had veteran cinematographer Jeff Schaff, mm -hmm. who is basically retired now. He's a little bit older. Oh, I see. Um, and he okay. he uh, is married to an old Pilates client of mine, and I and who who is a director. She's a director. Her name's Denny Gordon, uh -huh. uh, who wow. has done a lot of work for TV uh, and film, and one of my directed one of my favorite movies of all time called Joe Dirt. Um, which is a <laughs> okay. rather a rather silly movie if you've ever seen it. Um, I I know a lot David, of people will be David familiar Bade. with that. A lot of my audience will know Stars. that that movie. Exactly. So Denny Gordon um, and I met her, and I was really kind of it was before we went on our first trip, before I had anything really engraved, and I was um, you know I'd done all the research, and I think which mm -hmm. I think is the most important thing that one can do if you're going to do something like this. You really have to plan it out and really understand what you're getting into and know your subject well. And I had a, you know, we, I took her out for dinner and I said, you know, Denny, I want to do this. And this is this guy's story. And, you know, what do you think? Do you think it's, and she was like, yeah, this is great. You know, and you know what, you should take Jeff with you. He speaks French. He's not doing anything right now. And he would love to go. And I asked him and he said he would go. So I was like, Oh, woo, this oh is great. Nice. You know? So I got, yeah. and Jeff, Jeff has quite a, quite a resume himself. Um, most notably, uh, he was the film, the filmographer, filmographer, cinematographer for Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, and they actually, Denny and Jeff, did that show together, and they would go around the world visiting these fancy places and filming inside these these castles and mansions, etc. So, uh, so he, it was great to have him along the first time to kind of, he kind of, you know, threw me in, the, threw me in without, you know throwing me too far to the deep end. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, but it was great to have. And, and, and I should mention that on that first trip, about a week before we left, I had, I had talked to John, talked to Griff. Um, and he was kind of, I asked him to help me do like a, 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 a sort of a little video for Kickstarter. I was like, I gotta make, I gotta raise some money for this. Um, so we did like a trailer for that and he edited it and, and he, he, and I could tell he was, he was kind of curious about, you know, what this was really all about. And, and then at the last minute I said, why don't you come with us? And it would be great. And, you know, it would be great to have three of us. And, uh, and he met us over there after we'd been there for two days and suddenly there's John and we're picking him up in the, in the middle of this little sleepy French village at like two in the morning after he finally made it from the airport and they lost his suitcase and but it was really fun and, and th thus the hijinks began and it was it was it was a lot of fun to, <laughs> to, to to do this with these guys and i knew relatively nothing all i all i knew how to do is do research and kind of learn about stuff and, and uh -huh. figure out what kind of questions i need to ask and what what types of information that i need to learn uh, and they just did all the technical stuff and i i did all the driving basically so it was, it was well, the research is pretty pretty important, and uh, I mean, yeah, I imagine as with any project this size, it's um, it's always a little more than you expect when you start. Yeah, well, I'm, I you know I as I mentioned, you know, I, I, I my my background 
uh, educationally is uh, in music, uh, studying old music mm-hmm. uh, from you know pre Mozart, etc. Um, and I also dabbled in um, music research, music hist- historical research. Um, so, I, so my I, that was very that was a very easy transfer to take sort of that experience and those those that that set of skills and just apply it to this. You know, even though it's a someone who quite recent until quite recently was alive, um, and through the help of you know internet. Uh, information and things like that. It was a little bit. It's a little bit easier than having to go. You know, say you, you need to go to some little monastery in um, Austria and try to find some sort of handwritten records from 400 years ago. That's a little bit different. That's that's definitely like archaeology. Right. It, um, okay. So, so it's but, a little. But, so but this it, was nothing it, for you. Piece of cake. It's the, it's the same process though. It's the same yeah. exact process. You know yeah. what you're looking for. You have to as much biographical detail uh, as possible, and then in an attempt to somehow create an honest, humanistic sort of point of view of of an individual, you know, because people are all the same. We all have the same thoughts and feelings and emotions, and based on, you know, sort of how we live our life, one can draw conclusions from that. And and these are the types of uh, points of of interest that I'm trying to kind of uh, juice out of this of this never ending lemon. Uh, yeah, and that's that. Uh, it does seem to be never ending. You guys have uh, hours and hours of footage. I've always been curious how uh, document documentarians figure out what to you know how to trim that down to you know some kind of reasonable length for people to watch <laughs> oh sure yeah exactly it's like I, I i i wish i could make a six-hour documentary right but right. um but of course obviously no one's no one's i mean it just doesn't exist i'm just being facetious but uh yes to take you know i think we have something like probably 300 hours of of material Wow, um, and to turn that into forty-five minutes or so, or sorry, ninety minutes mm-hmm. uh, to one hundred and twenty minutes—that's you know that can that can be challenging, of course. Um, you know, it, even if I used one minute per person that we interviewed, that would be over two hours right there. So it's like, okay, how, how am I going to do this? Plus, there's going to be narration, plus all the musical examples. Um, yeah, wow. you know, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's a lot, but thanks to, you know, as I had mentioned, the, the transcription of the interviews helps to kind of find the, find the information that I've, that I may or may not have forgotten about. Um, I do take notes, but I, I, uh, most, mostly I just rely on my memory because if there's something that's really important or or shocking to me i i'll i'll, I'll always remember the moment upon hearing it oh well that makes sense was and, and who's and who said it right and why it's sure. important um yeah so uh you know and and and, and also with the with a with a story like this especially when um you know we, we basically spoke with every close friend of Scott Ross that he ever had in his life. Mm-hmm. 
um, most of them are in France. Uh, there was a couple from from Pittsburgh. He was from Pittsburgh. Um, so we were able to talk to a couple of childhood friends, um, and which is quite interesting. You know, you want right. you want to learn about this stuff. Uh, you know, sort of what was what was what life was like when when he before he was this sort of had this huge ambition to be you know this world class musician when you know when he's only ten years old. We w- I want to know about that kind of thing. Um, and of course, we finally uh, we were able to get a hold of his brother, uh, who for various reasons was. N- not making himself exactly uh, accessible, uh-huh. uh, but we finally so, we finally ex- we finally accessed him, and uh, and that was very interesting. We we went up to see where to, to see him um, where he lives in uh, uh, the the top of Michigan, and uh, he lives a very quiet life up there on the shores of Lake Superior. So that I mean, you know, we we uh, John and I went up there uh, last April. Last April, uh, I thought that was, was kind of recent. which was. Yeah, yeah, which was kind of which was uh, again, you know, it, it's important to to go see these people and to learn about them and to learn all the information that I need to know. But at the same time, I had never been to that part of the world before, and right. it was fascinating. It was even though there was there was nothing there. There was there was like forty people in the whole town. Oh, wow. Um, so you know, but it was it was definitely you know. A refreshing break from reality, mm-hmm. in a sense, you from, know, because because I, I I dream a lot. I, I I imagine like what would it be really like to to live here, and what would I really do with my time, and could I handle you know this sort of desolation, isolation, separation from really everything that I know. Um, I have those thoughts. There, uh, yeah, I have those thoughts almost, it's almost everywhere. It's surprising that they have electricity. You know what I mean? It's, right. It's, that that's how that's how remote it is. You know, or running water. You know, but it's pretty much the same yeah, as they, LA. They, but right? they have it. You know, they even have internet. Yeah, it's just like LA. Same thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's the same. It's the same thing. <laughs> What's the difference? Um, so so yeah so so yes the traveling has been great. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, it's you know it's 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 hugely satisfact satisfying to to be able to visit foreign countries and really soak up the just the the atmosphere and the the people and the food all under the guise of hey I'm working <laughs> I'm over here doing this thing you know but but it doesn't feel that way it doesn't feel like work. And I've, right. I've, always, so, tried to, I've always tried to make my life that way. I've always tried to uh-huh. make, like, as a Pilates teacher, it doesn't feel like work to me. It's just something that I love to do. Right. Yeah, I've tried that, too. It just hasn't worked out. So I'm trying again. Uh, doing a podcast. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, there's no rhyme or reason to anything. I think it really comes from just within, you know, mm-hmm. being happy, being happy. That's helpful. Happy, happy people yeah. do happy things. Yeah, that's oh. true. Um, I had uh, yeah. So you guys have spent a lot of time at the chateau where he um, was, where he lived for a long time. Can you say anything yes. about the well, chateau? That's, that, yeah, that, that, that's an interesting piece. kind of side story unto itself, like mm-hmm. how he how he arrived. Um, 
or how he came to actually live in this castle in southwestern France in a little village called Assas, which is about it's about 15 miles or so outside of Montpellier, which is down on the Mediterranean, uh, quite close to Spain, the Spanish border. So it's it's right there at the bottom of the country, but over on the left-hand side, if you're looking at a map. Uh, and from but prior to that, he was he was finishing his studies at the other end of the Mediterranean on the French coast in Nice. Um, so anyway, long wow. story short, he ends up visiting the chateau because he was informed of the fact that they, the family that lived there, possessed an original 18th century harpsichord that was in working order, that was functioning and apparently played quite well. Um, and uh, so he went on a little pilgrimage to go visit and hopefully play it, play upon it. Um, and uh, he was received by the the Chatelaine, as she would be known, or uh-huh. the the lady of the lady of the castle, who was a widow uh, with three adult daughters who did not live in the region. They were off with their families, you know, living their lives. Right. Uh, so she was she was quite alone and quite impressed by young Scott who at this point would have been about 17. Uh, and uh, he, had, he had resolved to stay in France, which was not pleasing to his mother. Um, and that's an, a, a completely different sort of side story, uh, mm-hmm. one, which lead, one which leads to a very dramatic and unfortunate uh, conclusion. Um, but he got to play the instrument and impressed and charmed this, this, uh, the widow lady to the point where she invited him to live there. When, as long as he wanted, whenever he wanted, he was always welcome. Uh, and he apparently took her up on it. So, so we see that this is really the beginning of his, uh, Career. Wow. He he used this instrument to basically cut his chops, Uh which which he which he did for the next two years. Um, So by the time he was nineteen, he thought it best to compete as as young young talented performers do. They compete in music competitions. They go head to head and see. Who's really the best, and who's gonna who's gonna come out on top in the world of the harpsichord? It doesn't sound quite common. <laughs> no, it really doesn't. Sense. Like, how many? Um, yeah, how many? It's top obvious, level? obviously a, a more of a niche market, if you uh-huh. will. But but he but he went off uh, up to he went up to Bruges in Belgium uh, and competed in the harpsichord competition that they hold there periodically. And he won first prize, and he was the first person to ever win the first prize, even though this was, I think, only the, the fourth year that it had been um, done. Uh, and obviously, he was the youngest person to win first prize, because no one had really won first prize before that. And, and the, the general age of competitors up to that point, you know, the, I think the youngest people would have been maybe 
in their mid thirties. Mm-hmm. And he's um, seventeen, which which is like he was nineteen. Nineteen, okay. He was nineteen. He's nineteen. So, at this so point. he so he showed this wow obvious talent, this obvious moxie, this American, you know, and, and it really comes back to sort of like the the way the Americans conduct business and handle themselves in the world, um, regardless of the, the place where they happen to be, which might have a different tradition of doing things. Mm-hmm. France is definitely, definitely more slowly paced, uh, more guarded of a, of a type of society. Uh, it's not as it's it's there's freedom in sort of artistic expression and things like that. But the way that things are done, sort of politically, um, with the, like culturally, politically, you know, how you would approach somebody or ask them if, if you wanted to do something, um, and Americans just kind of. They just kind of make up their mind and they go and do it. Um, and uh, and I was accused of that by the the present Chatelaine, who is the daughter of Scott Ross's Chatelaine, um, when we we announced that we would be you know liking to come over and visit, and she responded, "Yes, that'd be great." And we just sort of th- th- that was pretty much at the end of the contact, and then we just sort of showed up. Um, which was quite surprising to them. They thought wow. that there would be more sort of time to prepare and and uh, you know greet us and things mm-hmm. like that. We just sort of show up on their doorstep, knocking on the door. Here we are, uh, <laughs> and, they, and they they found that quite wow. strange. And I uh-huh. and to me, it was just business as usual. This is what you do. You just you. I, I said I was coming. Right here, I am. Here you know? I am. What's the big deal? You know. So so anyway. So that's that's sort of like how what how Scott sort of conducted himself in this sort of European. Uh, fantasy land where he lived, um, but but still with his American sort of way of doing things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he just went on this sort of like well progressed career uh, following that, and and he did amazing things, and he recorded all, pretty much all of the major uh, works of harpsichord music, um, and you know, numbering into the thousands of pieces. He's re- he recorded thousands and thousands of harpsichord pieces and wow. organ pieces as well. Um, so he, he, and he could play basically everything from memory. And if he didn't know the piece already, he could sight read it perfectly the first time. You just stick music in front of him, didn't matter what it was, he would play it. And pretty much free of mistakes. And, and rather full of, uh, interpretational awareness and sensitivity, and you know the style—the style of the phrasing and mm-hmm. things like that—he pretty much already had under his belt. But this always continued to improve, just like anybody else who practices something. You're always going to get better, just like you and your podcasts. You know, it's 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 always going to get better. There's going to be a you know a a, a, a richer future ahead if one just continues you know plodding away you know and so that's what he did through his right. whole life he he taught in in the the university system in in quebec that's why we went to quebec because he lived there during the school years um starting in the mid-70s through the mid-80s um and he had this sort of life as a as a as a harpsichord instructor and over the course of time, uh, by by the time the early '80s come around, his his studio in Quebec was full. I mean, he was he was quite a popular teacher, 
eventually. Mm-hmm. You know? So he created quite a reputation for himself in that um, spectrum as well. Uh, and then, of course, his sort of eventual decline and the his his unfortunate um, the, the unfortunate fact that he sort of lived as a he was homosexual in the era of AIDS. Uh, he was quite promiscuous, and it it got him. Mm-hmm. Um, so so, but but he but he he never stopped. You know, it didn't really slow him down, really, which. Uh, is sort of a credit to his will to achieve and to continue living life as if I've still have more to do. Um, but it, even though it didn't slow him down, his his decision to continually keep working likely sped up the effects of the disease, and it killed him probably sooner than if he hadn't done that. And he died really shortly before sort of the advent of you know the, the the cocktails of drugs, which suddenly were prolonging people's lives. Um, so you know it, it 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 it's the sort of tragedy to triumph, back to tragedy, back to triumph kind of story. And you know so I've, I, so going back to like why did I do this? Well, this is you know it's because of that, mm-hmm. and because I am a fan of that music, because it's it's a very it's a, it's a an area of knowledge which has really limited um, exposure to to the to mainstream society. You know, so I'm hoping that the that the the final product will appeal not only to just fans of Scott Ross or more broadly fans of the harpsichord or more broadly fans of ancient music or slightly more broadly fans of classical music slightly more broadly fans of music but also his story mm-hmm. yeah because well it, because it is and and not wanting to give too much away i can tell you that it is a, a crazy story occasionally hair raising um full of of misfortune some misdeeds and and a lot of mystery it sounds like a really fascinating story, especially because, uh, you know, people don't know about the harpsichord. They definitely don't know about Scott Ross. It's, uh, and I think in, when you're making documentaries, those are really important ingredients, bringing something that people um, don't really know anything about. I mean, sure, you can make documentaries about World War II, and if it's good enough, it might be interesting. But when you make it, to me, it's far more interesting to have a subject that very few people are exposed to and um, bring that out, especially when it's this interesting. I mean, the whole history of the harpsichord and the instrument itself and the music, but then when you add Scott Ross's story and hopefully, you know, do parts two and three about the harpsichord, um, that that just makes it, it, it sounds really fascinating to me. Oh, thanks, Joel. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like you say, World War Two, right? I mean, I, I've always <laughs> joked that, like, basically anything with Nazis in it somehow is is appealing. People want to watch it, even if it's a movie or a documentary. Right. For whatever reason, it's, it's it's it still retains this sort of strange fascination for a lot of people. And I can tell you, with with Glee and and 
and pride that uh, there even is a Nazi aspect to the Scott Ross story. So I can't tell you what oh. it is. Oh, well, there you go. Well, actually, then it's it actually is concerned with, I actually will tell you. So the, the chateau, which we had just discussed, uh-huh. um, before it was owned by this family who uh, Scott Ross came to know, the, the widowed um, Chatelaine, um, was actually during the end of World War II, it was commandeered by the Nazis, and they used it actually as a, as a command point and post uh, and also a lookout point because it's a, it's a, it's very high as, as most castles, historical castles tend to be, they're always on the very highest ground right. in the region where they happen to be. So kind of makes sense. You can, you can always see who's coming. Right. Right. Um, and, and from the, from the rooftop of this chateau, you can actually see the Mediterranean sea. Wow. Um, and through, and w- with the naked eye, you can uh-huh. see the coastline. And so obviously with a pair of really strong binoculars, you can see farther than that. Uh, and this was at the time when the Nazis had no inkling of where they knew they were going to be invaded. They knew it was, they knew it was happening soon, but they didn't know would it come from the South, from the Mediterranean, or would it come from the Atlantic where the Americans eventually, um, said surprise right so, um you know so so there were they were in the chateau we actually found wow. upstairs in one of the sort of a closet um there was a, a wax seal embossed with a swastika that that they had they had gone around the entire place sort of sealing off all of the doors and putting these wax interesting piece of bits of wax on the you know on the the crack of the door, so if someone opened it, they would know. Oh, I see. And oh, it, and it, was, it was still it was still there. There's a swastika, you know. You had it had a little wow. crack in it because someone had opened it, but it was still on there. Um, so yeah, it was it, yeah Nazis. Hmm. Well, and yeah. Beetle. So if you've, if if, you've if got, got the Nazis. Beatles in it or Nazis, and, just got to try to figure out a yeah. you know how to combine and make a movie that has Nazis and Beatles in it. That that will sell. That'll that'll do it. Well, maybe if you just pan by a Beatles album somewhere, exactly, that's all you need. Actually, Scott Ross, in his in his sort of most flamboyant uh, phase uh, in the early seventies, he actually looked like sort of late Beatles John Lennon with the long long hair, huge beard, and the little granny glasses. So there you go. So So we got Beatles, we got Nazis, we got Scott Ross, we got harpsichord. What more could a what more could a girl want? <laughs> Nothing. It's done. So, and that'll be out uh, September. Uh, tomorrow. Tomorrow. All right. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. This is but, taking. This is take. This is taking longer than I I wanted. Um, you know. But at the same time, you know, the good uh, something something like this really can't be rushed. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, given given my limited expertise, I thought it would be better to take my time doing it than to try to do something within a year and have it come out crabby. Well, and or, I don't or half or half baked. You know what I mean? I don't. Yeah. it's got to be at least at least three quarters baked. I, mean, I don't think I don't think there's many documentaries that are done in a year. It does it it does take time, and especially when you maybe don't you know you are kind of starting where you're starting. So. It, it's just, yeah, it, 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 I think it's very normal. A lot of documentaries are a 10-year project, so 
sure. you know, you're sure. doing pretty good. I know, I know you have at least one more trip planned. Uh, well, yeah, we I mean, you know, every, every, every time, every time we finish up, we go, okay, that's it. Uh-huh. This is done. We, we got to, we got to finish this up. Uh, and then something always happens, you know, it's like, you know, Pacino said, you know, just when you think you're done, they drag you right back in. Oh, right. Um, and, uh, it, it kind of happened that way this year. I mean, I, I, last year I, I thought it was over. I thought, you know, mm-hmm. we, we're all finished up, you know, no more, we, we have enough that we have plenty. Surely we can, you know, make, make something with this. Um, and, Lo and behold, suddenly Scott Ross's brother James comes out of the woodwork and agrees to see us. Well, uh, that's a, that's a no-brainer. There, we got to go. Hey, and it's only we all we have to do is just go over to Michigan. It's not like we have to like fly out of the country or anything. It's going to be cheaper, uh, which of course it was. I mean, it was like so cheap by comparison. Um, and, oh, and something so, is uh, and, something's happening with the phone. Oh shit! My my phone is about to die, and I did it. Now I'm on now I'm on a wired landline. So anyway, so so yes, yeah, so when we were on this um, illustrious Michigan trip, we mm-hmm. decided well, there's there's there are actually other people in that region that we can go talk to. So we after we went to see his brother up in Michigan, we drove down the other side of the lake to a place called Oberlin, Ohio, where the, which is known for their music conservatory, and we spoke with the retired harpsichord professor there, after with which we drove over to a place called Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, where we interviewed another harpsichord professor from the, uh, I think, Illinois University or University of Northern Illinois, something like that, after which we drove up to Iowa City and we interviewed a uh, a harpsichord scholar of all people, you know, a guy who's written books on the harpsichord and, mm-hmm. wow. uh, you know, had made instruments and things like that. So that, that was a very, very interesting trip. And of course, while we're on the trip, we get, we get a phone call from the good folks at the Chateau and Assas asking, will we come next month to document the 30th anniversary um, festival in honor of Scott Ross? the 30th anniversary of his death. He died in 1989. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So 2019 obviously marks that uh, big milestone. Wow. So, you know, it, so long story short, yeah, we, we you get to the point where uh, it, when you think it's done, it, it actually isn't, you know. Um, so So the future then really will dictate when it is done, but obviously that just really has to come from a decision to say, that's it, no more, I can't do any more, we don't need any more. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, the, 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 the volume of knowledge and resources for such a project is limitless. Well, there's yeah. always going to be, there's always that. another harpsichordist to talk to, there's always another museum with a harpsichord collection, there's mm-hmm. always another... You name it. There's another avenue. We were, we've been invited by the um, the visiting professor of harpsichord at Juilliard to come out there this fall and do something with her students. Oh wow! Very very interesting. You know? Very interesting. Um, so did she just hear about like through the harpsichord grapevine that you guys were doing this and? 
Oh, it's a, it's a woman. Her name is uh, Beatrice Martin. Uh huh. Martin from from France. Mm-hmm. Um, and we we had interviewed her uh, about three years ago when we visited Bruges in Belgium. Oh, okay. Um, where we actually documented, as I mentioned before, Scott had won a harpsichord competition when he was nineteen and won first prize. Mm-hmm. They still continue to give this uh, competition. Um, and we went there in 2015 and documented it for a week, for a straight week. We we filmed every single um, competitor doing their best to impress, and wow. she was one of the judges. So uh-huh. we, we interviewed her then, and we saw her again this time around, um, where we had the very rare opportunity to visit uh, a very wonderful guy, um, who is British, but he's uh, he's he he wants to be one of those expats that you hear so much about who leave leave England and and settle in France. So he he had this place uh, kind of out by French Disneyland. It's way out in the country. Out, it's just nothing but farms and little villages and old historical sites and things like that. And uh, his claim to fame, as far as our story is concerned, is that he owns a number of highly rare, fully functional, one-of-a-kind harpsichords. And he had them out at this country house. And after much sort of deliberation on his part, whether or not he should allow us to come and see them, at the end of the day, we arrive and Beatrice Martin was there that he, he had, who had come over as a favor to him to demonstrate the instruments for our camera so we here we have these hugely rare instruments one-of-a-kind instruments with the with the the type of ornamentation that that belongs you know like on on a uh, you know like a castle or something you know i mean it's like carved carved um figurines in the legs and and on the 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 cases of the instrument using you know uh, ivory and mother of pearl and and um, smoked glass and things like I mean you, like you you just you, you have to see it to believe how how fine and fancy these instruments are um, and and here we have performing on them you know basically one of the world's top players wow uh, so so little things like that was just thrilling just 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 a huge treat. And then, you know, then we had to stop and have our sit down for our, the, the, the most amazing lunch, <laughs> French lunch you've ever seen in your life, you know, complete with bottles of rosé and, and, you know, it was, it was quite, uh, yeah, John quite, was uh, telling me he called it, it a was, little it was snack. Quite, it was quite a lot of hard work. Yeah, John, John said he called that a little snack. Yeah, this, exactly. This lunch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It basically was so, a living museum. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so you know, that and and this was and this visit was sort sort of kind of last minute. You know, like mm-hmm. I mentioned before, like sometimes the work just is nonstop, and then sometimes you're kind of like, okay, well, we don't really have anything set up for tomorrow or the next day. So I just had to kind of go through my 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 index of people, and I was like, oh, that's right, forgot about this guy, and let me see if I can get a hold of him. So you know, you, and by this point. You know the 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 tendrils run far and and wide as far as like my connections now with mm-hmm. this, this community. So I you know I have my favorite kind of people who who are 
always so helpful, and they seem to know everybody. And I just I I wrote to this guy Frederick Haas, who's also a top player, and he knows everybody. And he's a really sweet guy. Um, we've interviewed him many times. He owns an original instrument. Blah blah blah. Um, and I said, do you know this guy, this Alan? And he and he gave me his email, and I just sort of texted him, you know, wrote him up, said, this is what we're doing, we'd love to come and see you, or if you're available, blah, 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 and then it just all went from there, and then suddenly there we are, and then suddenly here I am back in America, and it's already happened, and it's a memory now, you know, so, so yeah, so, so, so to, 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 to pull the plug, as it were, to kind of say that I'm, I'm done with this, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to do, you know, I'm almost addicted to it at this point. Because I, because because I, I am a completist, I I have to have all of the information. Mm-hmm. I need mm-hmm. to to satisfy myself that the work is done before I can then start the monumental task of putting something together that will satisfy the viewer. Right, right. Well, that I mean that makes sense. It would be a very a really difficult thing to uh, kind of wrap up, especially when. Opportunities like that just keep coming up. That's right. That's got to be exactly. difficult. I think you're going to need uh, a companion, like a uh, coffee book, coffee table book, or something, to show all these instruments. And uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so, but, but I've been very lucky. The, the, the whole thing has been a really wonderful experience, and I've been really blessed to have uh, friends slash you know uh, colleagues who share really share the same passion with me but at the very least are willing to sort of accompany me on these odysseys you know and to just kind of let 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 things be as they are you know and to whatever right. happens happens and 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 always you know sometimes sometimes we 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 get like unfortunate little things that happen along the way but for the most part it's always run smoothly it's always been uh very very fulfilling mhm mhm yeah yeah but yeah. Uh, one of the fun things that we that we did finally um and you know it's a, it, a lot of a lot of it you just sort of let technology patch up to like where you are in the project so when we first started the project there was no such thing as a as a a drone that you could do filming with in, a, in any in any sort of kind of high def, definition way, oh, right. and of course uh, right. suddenly now we have drones that that film in high definition in 4K, um, you know, uh, resolution. Um, so of course we had to get one of those, and then we took that around, and you know, then and, and so it's it, it then suddenly our scope of of ammunition has 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 grown mm-hmm. you know? so, our, yeah. so our footage is so you know there's this thing called b-roll which is um you know just anything that you know when you see scans of like the outside of a building that's called b-roll any kind of like just footage of people walking down the street just to kind of get the flavor of the place that's called b-roll so the b-roll now is like from you know aerial footage you know this is this is what a sauce looks like from the air mm-hmm. the chateau down there and things like that you know so so you know, it's it's it, it just keeps getting better. It's a lot of fun. It's pretty I, amazing. I recommend it. Yeah, I can. And what? Expensive? Pardon? And what did you say? Expensive? Like 
No, I said I, I recommend it. Oh, you recommend it? Uh, yeah, I recommend doing this. Doing you know, if you want to, if you want to, if you want to, if you got a bad case of the doldrums and you want to cure, just go do something like this. It, it really does help a lot. It, it adds a little bit of anxiety to like, oh, what am I going to do? How am I going to finish this? You know, what's it, what's it going to really be? What is this going to turn into? But along again, like along the way, I, th- I think I think a lot of it is just the process. And huh. that's and that's almost as rewarding as the final product. That's interesting. I mean, this is a much smaller project, but I have all those same feelings. Mm-hmm. I, <laughs> yeah, with a podcast, exactly. all that comes up, uh, especially just doing it on my own. But all those same, what is, what is this? What am I doing? What is this going to turn into? Is it mm-hmm. anything? Yeah. And then I'm talking to someone I haven't spoken to in a while. Well, since your birthday. And last, what was that, two years ago? Oh, that's right, yeah. No, yeah. That, that was last summer. That was last summer. Oh, man, time yeah. flies. But, yeah. It sure does. Muso and Franks is still there. 100-year anniversary this year. Oh, my gosh. And it's, disappoint- it's, it's disappointing that, uh, well, not, maybe not for them, but for, for us regulars who, uh, who like it to be like sort of like this well-kept secret that uh, it's it's heavily featured in the new Quentin Tarantino movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, man, uh, don't so, you hate so I, that. So I imagine that it's going to be really hard to get a seat at the bar. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's from now probably on. true. Oh, yeah. man. Well, it's, that's uh, too bad. Yeah, uh, and I understand that completely. Take. Yeah, things. Uh, that's actually happening to the state that I live in. <laughs> I mean, it used to be just kind of no one's really heard of Oregon, and now certain areas, uh, I guess people have found out that this, this state exists, because there's a lot of uh, nature areas that of, are very crowded, and yeah, full of people from all over the world suddenly. It's like, what? Hey, what oh, happened? Oh, really? It's not just Angelinos coming it's up there? not just Angelinos anymore. That's, okay. When I moved here, that's what it was. When I first moved, right. it was a mass exodus from the California area. You know, the story was you sell a house in California and, you know, you can, li- you can buy a house and live the rest of your life. And, and um, it's probably still true to some extent, but uh, too many of them came up. And Portland has been the highest real estate market at times. And... Yeah, right in the country. So yeah, well, we, we, we nice. yeah, like our like our pretty friend nice. John, you know, he he did the right. same thing. Yeah, he, but he lived. He, he, he divested in, yeah. in L.A. and went up to sort of live a quasi semi retirement while he while he plans the next phase of his life. You know, and right. I'm, I'm keeps... glad I get to. I'm glad I get to be one of the ones to kind of distract him. You know, take him off to Europe and. It's great. I, I think that's like really because that. he, yeah, he. <laughs> whenever he can't decide what to do next, he gets a bunch of offers and uh, ends up having a ton of work. So, yeah, that's a, that's how life works, and right? When like, come you, on, just, just when you, I, just when I thought I was out, they keep pulling me back in. <laughs> that's it. It's so true. It is so it true. Is true. Uh, so, is harpsichord? Is it, uh, or has it been bigger in the U? In Europe than the U.S. is it like? Oh God, yes. Yeah, I thought okay. So I mean, oh, what's yeah, the biggest without, without uh, saying, sort of, yeah. Is France the biggest harpsichord center? I would I would say. Or well, it's it, inter- that's an interesting point. I mean, in the modern day, I would have to say it, it's a very important center. I mean, just mm-hmm. the whole country. Um, although the the sort of from the 
the educational standpoint, I would have to say that the Netherlands um, beats France. Oh, interesting. As far as far as the its its legacy and importance as a as a teaching center. Uh huh. Um, but historically, yeah, Paris. They basically the French were the were the last. Um, sort of civilization or country uh, in the 18th century to to cling on to that tradition, where in most other countries it was quite old-fashioned. Right, so we're talking about an instrument that had been around um, in sort of deep ways for you know 200 years. You know, eventually, you know, it becomes something where no matter how how glorious and beautiful and you know uh, reputable, you know, young young kids, kids today, they don't want to play grandpa's harpsichord anymore. They want they want something different. Uh, so when the piano was developed, uh, that that was a huge blow to the sort of popularity of the harpsichord, which. Oh, you know, okay. obviously, is is dangerous for the people that write for the instrument, uh, who perform the instrument, and also who build the instrument. Mm-hmm. So then you see this uh, sort of scramble to um, adopt the new the, the new piano um, from from especially builders. Um, so the builders of harpsichords, basically, when it was, it's an obvious transition. I mean, it's the only thing different between the two instruments is the mechanism that, that creates the sound. Um, but you also see in sort of period uh, publications, uh, we start to see you know collections of keyboard music being suitable for harpsichord or piano. So they start to they, we start to see them composing instrument uh, music, which it's probably a little bit more like piano music, like the modern music. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 really less it's less complicated than than your um, sort of high level harpsichord music. And it's very complicated music and very um, the, the the compositional style is is more dense. Whereas the new piano style is a little bit a little bit lighter um, because just because of the way the mechanism creates the sound. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas a harpsichord it plucks the string, it, it sends up a, a, a little piece of bird quill, which just makes a just plunk and plunk plunks the string. Where a piano, you hit the mechanism, it, it releases a hammer, which hits the string. It kind of pounds the string, um, and uh, so the new music reflects that. So when you see this music, you know. It's, could be played on a harpsichord or a piano. Well, you're like, yeah, it's actually for piano, but you just wanted to keep that going. You want to keep that harpsichord thing alive. But um, and then and then finally, at the end of sort of the the 18th century, the French Revolution um, sort of wiped out the the legacy of the harpsichord in France because, of course, it was it was viewed as a a symbol of the upper class. Only rich people had harpsichords. Oh, uh, okay, okay. Those, those, those wig, those wig wearing bastards. Those, right, um, right. You know, so so uh, suddenly, you know, if if you did own instruments, you if they were valuable, you would hide them because they were they were often 
I think every every residence at some point in in during that period during the revolution was inspected, you know, invaded, or you know, sort of people would just come in and look around and take away anything that was a symbol of the aristocracy. Wow! And then confiscate and confiscate. Huh. Yeah, it was just all That's confiscated. Uh huh. Um, so so suddenly, you know, if you were a harpsichordist or a harpsichord composer, you didn't write for that music anymore or you didn't make those instruments anymore and that's kind of that that was sort of the death of the instrument in in the sort of in the timeline of its disappearance really like we don't we don't hear from it through pretty much through the 19th century with with rare exceptions um and then obviously a, a certain uh, amount of time passed that it then suddenly became this sort of historical curiosity Oh yeah, that's right. What are these instruments? And I wonder what the music sounded like. And mm-hmm. and and then we start to see people um, sort of trying to bring it back, like in 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 sort of historically uh, sound ways um, over the course of time. When they first discovered it, you know, it was just really like a curiosity. And we and I think the first. The first instance of this would have been, I think, in around 1896, something like that, at, uh, at the um, World Exposition in Paris, where they presented sort of historical things, you know, things from from many years ago, but of French culture. And one of them was a harpsichord. And then suddenly, like, oh yeah, and it and and it kind of went from there um, to the modern day, where uh we we take care we try to take care of the old instruments you have builders who are living who can make old instrument or make new instruments based on old techniques and come pretty darn close to making it perfect mm-hmm. really there really are some talented uh builders out there these days and there and there's more of them than than you would ever imagine oh really there is a lot of people oh, yeah. building new oh, yeah. wow that yeah, that sure, is surprising. Sure. That's something even to, even in, that's even very in the state. Even yeah, in the state, in America. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, it's got to be yeah, um, an amazing uh, craft. I mean, if you're interested in the harpsichord and you're interested in instrument building, that's got to be a really fun challenge to take on. You know, if you're if you sure. have that kind of craftsmanship. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, even if you don't, they they you can even buy a kit. Okay. Where basically, wow. every, basically everything's already sort of pr- all the wood is pre-cut, uh-huh. etc. You get you get your your key, you get your keyboard. Wow. Uh, they even give you a wire for the string uh-huh. and, and the jacks, which are you know the, the 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 little mechanisms that go up and down, which which attach to is the little bit of what will historically would have been bird quill. Now now if you buy a kid harpsichord, it's like a kind of plastic. Mm-hmm. Um, for the for the little quills to pluck the strings and things like that, and all you have to do is just have some a basic knowledge of woodworking. You know how to use glue and and hammer nails and things like that, and you slap together your instrument. You can do it. You know. Wow, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I know they sell. Yeah, you can buy a guitar kit too, but you better know something about building a guitar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have, you have to have a little, a, at least a, a modicum of of experience with you yeah. know, working with wood and it, right. It's not like trying to make a drum. 
No. Anyone can do that. That's right. <laughs> Grab a barrel, <laughs> stick a head on it. Well, That's shoot, right. I have, uh, I've kept you on for quite a while because this, to me, this is really fascinating. I hope that everyone else finds it that way, but I should probably wrap it up now, and I want to have you back when you uh, either get close or put out the documentary, at least the first one. I hope that you can come on. Maybe you and John could come on together, or maybe the three of you at least. Yeah, that'd be great. I'd love that. Yeah, that would be, that would be awesome. So exactly, this is yeah. no, it's, it's, it's always it's always nice to talk about uh, these types of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, anytime you want, Joel, I'll be be glad to come back and talk to you. Well, that's awesome. I'm going to hold you to that because yeah, it's <laughs> it's easier to invite guests that you know. I'm finding uh, sometimes I get a bit introverted, and that's not a very it's kind of tough to uh, be a podcast host when that's the case. So. Um, yeah, let me just say, you have been listening to... Were you still talking? This is Joel Aubrick, and I've been talking to Bruce Birchmore, and we've been talking about mostly harpsichords, but other things, too. Thanks so much for being on the show. You're welcome. Thanks, Joel. Good to talk to you. And you, too. So, be good to each other. <laughs>